There's uh, been another turn to the uh, never-ending, seemingly never-ending, great uh, uh, rubber gun story. Uh, Not only... Not only are people turning from their sin, but they're turning in their ammunition. Uh, I got these in my boxes last week. This is a whole summer's supply of rubber bullets. And I just thought I'd show it to you to indicate some um, measure of the depth of people's repentance after telling that, uh, that story. I don't know how many of you saw the Grammy Awards when they were presented, but... Uh, If you did, you probably noticed that the most beautiful woman on the show was a man, uh, Boy George. And uh, the best-looking man on the show was a woman, uh, Ann Leonard, from uh, the Arrhythmics. And uh, perhaps the uh, high point, or from my standpoint, the nadir of the entire show was uh, the two men who sang a love song to each other, one dressed as as a woman, and sang a song from the uh, broad, Broadway play, uh, La Caja Folie, uh, which celebrates uh, homosexual love. Now, that, uh, that indicates something of what's happening today in the music world, but I think far more than that, it indicates something of what's happening to our culture, the terrible confusion about our sexuality, because art always follows culture. It's simply an expression of where we are as, as people, as, as a nation. We're terribly confused about our sexuality. One of the problems, I think, that young men and women face today is that they have very few examples of real manhood and womanhood to look at. Now, Scripture tells us that there are two examples of manhood to look at. One is Jesus Christ himself, and the other is the church. And it's that that Paul is concerned about in the prayer that we'll uh, we'll look at this morning. Uh, In John... In the Gospel of John, John records Jesus as saying, When the Spirit of truth has come, he will convince the world of sin, because they do not believe on the Father. In other words, the one sin of which the the human race is is convinced, the one sin that concerns God is the sin of unbelief in Jesus Christ. That's one thing that, uh, that's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, to convince the world of sin. Secondly, he will convince the world of righteousness, because I go to the Father, Jesus says. In other words, the only example of real manhood that the world has, has seen would, uh, would be gone from, from the scene. He would go back to the Father, and uh, he would no longer be visible. And so what's left is the church. You and I are the example that God has left behind of what a real man and a real woman ought to be. And it's for that that Paul prays, for the Ephesian church and for us in chapter 3. Now let's begin reading with verse 14, Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom all the family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
Now you'll notice that uh, the Apostle begins this uh, prayer, or the introduction to his prayer, with the phrase with which he began chapter 3, for this reason. And that puts us back into chapter 2, where the Apostle describes for us our, our great salvation. Our Lord individually transplanted us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his Son. He made us alive, those of us that were dead. And he gave us new life. He put us into the family of God. So really two things happened to us. He saved us individually. And then he brought us into his church. The Lord doesn't make any private salvation deals with any of us. Personal, yes, but not private. When we're uh, regenerated, when we're redeemed, we're brought into his, uh, his family. The church is not some organization for Christians that just happen to be, by nature, very gregarious and groupy and like to be with other people. We're in the church because uh, God has called us into the church. We are part of his family, as Paul goes on to say. We are the family that derives its name from the Father. It's almost impossible to reproduce that play on words in English. It's somewhat like our play on the words brother and brotherhood. The word father and, and family in Greek have the same root. Father is pater, family is patria. The word patria means a tribe or a group of people that uh, have, have descended from a common ancestor. And it's that play that he, that he has in mind. We are in the family because we're all descended from, uh, from one father. We're all family. We all have the same last name. We just have to get the first name straight. We have to get to know each other personally, but we're family. That's why we don't make a, a, a whole lot about formal membership here, though we encourage you to become a member if that's your choice. But the reason we don't make a great deal of it is because you are family. If you walk in that door and you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord, you're part of, of this family, which Paul says is not only here on earth, but it's in heaven. It's all around the world. It's in heaven. It's everywhere. I'm a roper, as you know. My father says he doesn't know where the name came from. Either our descendants made rope or they stretched them. But uh, <coughs> all, I, all I do know is that my great-grandfather came from England with a whole bunch of horses. He, was a, he raced horses and he brought a bunch of quarter horses with him with my grandfather. And they settled somewhere on the East Coast. And then uh, when the Oklahoma Territory, the Indian Territory, opened up, they moved to uh, Oklahoma and then to Missouri and settled around Sircoxie, Missouri. And now there are ropers all over the place. I just have scads of nieces and nephews and uncles and aunts. And they're all over the place. They're in Texas and they're in Oregon and they're in Idaho now. And everywhere you look, you find a roper. We don't, you know, we, I don't know everybody in the family, but we're all family. We all bear the same last name. We're all descended from the same, uh, from the same patriarch, the same father. And that's what Paul is saying to us. We're all part of the family. Now, that doesn't mean that we're always a happy family. There are a lot of stresses and strains in any family. I find that's true. I find it's true in my, my own family at home, and I find that's true in the larger family of people who are descended from a common father. You know, some are real cranky. Some are very hard to get along with. Some are, are dull. Some are a real drag. Uh, sometimes they run away from home. Sometimes you wish they would run away from home. <laughs> our, our son Brian was, was always running away from home uh, whenever we would, not every time, but often when we would discipline him, he'd just pack up his little bag and he would leave. 
And I can remember a couple of times Carol and I even helping him pack. You know, we'd, <laughs> we'd go in and say, oh, Brian, we don't want you to go, you know, but if, if you do, we want you to, and Carolyn would fix him a little bag lunch, and off he'd go. And uh, he'd go stay at a neighbor's house all day, and then at night when dinner time came, he'd rap on the door, you know, and he'd walk in and sit down and start eating, because where else would he go? It was home. It's like a little boy that was walking around the block with a suitcase, and the neighbor says, what are you doing? The kid says, I'm running away from home. He says, how come you're walking around the block? He said, my mom won't let me cross the street. <laughs> And that, that's the way it is with our family. You, you can't get away from God, see. He's relentless. He's the hound of heaven. Keep trying to run away and he keeps gathering you in. And Paul says that's the way that we, we ought to be about one another. When, when a family member shows up, we gather them in. Greet them, love them, care for them. Take care of their needs because we're all family. Now, with that introduction, Paul begins to pray. And I'm sure if you studied this passage on your own or you worked on it in a growth group, you realize that uh, this is another example of Paul's tangled syntax. He just gets all wrapped up. and It's like trying to untangle a skein of, uh, of wool yarn that's gotten tangled up. And you can't find the loose end. You don't know where in the world he's going. You don't know where to start. But really, it's, it's, it's very simple once you understand the construction of these verses from 14 on or from 16 on. Everything revolves around the little conjunction, that. T-H-E-T, that. It's repeated three times. Verse 16, verse 17, and in verse uh, 19. He prays first, that God the Father would grant you, and that's us, you, the first people to whom this letter was addressed, the folks in the Roman Empire, that constituted the churches spread throughout the empire and to us today in the 20th century, that he would grant to us, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the first request. The second request is that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, all the dimensions of Christ's love, and to know and experience the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That's the second request. The third request is, is in verse 19, that you may be filled up unto all the fullness of God. So essentially Paul prays for three things, each of which is dependent upon the preceding. The way this uh, passage is constructed, it indicates that each is dependent upon the other. He prays first that Christ may... Uh, be at home in your hearts. And secondly, he prays that we may come to experience personally uh, the love of Christ, and that's dependent upon the first request. And then thirdly, that we may be filled up to the fullness with God, or to the fullness of God, and that request is dependent upon the two that precede. Uh, each is a specific and individual element for which he prays, but each is dependent upon the other. Now let's look at them as they occur. Verse 16. Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. I pray that He, the Father, would grant you. It's a gift. It's not based upon our merit. It's not because we're wise or wonderful or clever or good. It's all based upon His goodness, His wisdom, his love, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, not out of, but according to, that is the measure of his gift, 
is the measure of his glorious, uh, of his glorious uh, uh, wealth. To be strengthened with power through the Spirit. The verb is passive. We're not to strengthen ourselves. It's not a matter of gritting our teeth and clenching our jaw and, and doubling our fist and deciding that we're going to do it. We have to be strengthened in the inner man through the Spirit with the result that the first uh, conjunction or first phrase, so that, indicates result, with the result that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So Paul's first prayer is that Christ may dwell in your heart. And you say, I thought Christ dwelt in the heart of every believer. That's the essence of Christianity. We, we, we believe that. Christ is not over there as an example. He's not merely in heaven. He is within us in the person of the Holy Spirit, indwelling us, empowering us, enabling us. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus, uh, we're told that Jesus knocks on the door of our heart to gain acceptance. And becoming a Christian means opening the door of your heart and inviting him in. And he says, I will come in. That's not a metaphor. It's not a figure of speech. It's reality. It comes in. So what does Paul mean when he prays that Christ may dwell in our heart? He's writing to Christians. Why would he pray that? Christ is already there. Well, the, the answer really is very simple. There, there are at least two Greek words that are used in the New Testament for dwell. One means to, uh, to visit or to dwell as a stranger or a transient. This word, the word that Paul uses here, means to be at home, to dwell deep down. Katoiketo is the word. The katai at the beginning of the verb means intensifies the verb. Dwell deep down in your heart. Have the run of the house. That's what he means. Now, let me illustrate the difference. Last weekend, it was our privilege to have Ron Ritchie stay with us when he was here for the men's coaching clinic. And he stayed in Brian Roper's room down in our basement. And we told Ron when he came, because he's an old friend from way back, you, know, you can have the run of the house and just anything you want to, just kick, kick your shoes off and, and enjoy yourself. Uh, anything you want, you know, it's, it's yours. This is our house. But I noticed Ron didn't do that. He pretty much stayed down in his room. He came up and ate with us. But he didn't rummage around in my closet for my clothes. He didn't go rummaging through my change drawer and my desk for extra change. He didn't uh, go through Carolyn's cabinets in the, kitchens, uh, in the kitchen to get something to eat. He, he really was not at home. But in two weeks, Brian is coming home. <laughs> and he will be at home. He just rummages through the house. You know, every closet belongs to him, every part of the house. And he, go, you know, he goes in, borrows my shirts, borrows my shoes. Unfortunately, we wear the same size and everything. Borrows my socks, takes change out of my change drawer, rummages through the kitchen, gets all this food together, puts it on the table. He, you know, nobody says a thing to him because he belongs there. It's his house as much as ours. He's at home. There's no room that's, uh, that's from which he's excluded. He has, he has the run of the place. Now, that's what Paul prays for, that Christ will have that kind of freedom in our lives, that he will not be excluded from any part of, of our house. Uh, I, I uh, like very much Crusade's uh, little circle. All of you have seen it. I use it a lot in explaining salvation. A little circle with a throne in the center and ego on the throne, and Christ knocks on the outside of the circle. And when we ask him in, he comes in to displace ego, and he takes his place of authority on the throne of our life, and ego goes under the throne subject to him. And I think that's a very good, very useful uh, little symbol for explaining how one becomes a Christian. I use it a lot. 
But it's not adequate when we talk about sanctification. Because in fact, we have not one throne in our life, but a whole bunch of thrones. I see it more, if, if I were to draw a diagram, it would look like a pie with segments in it. In the center would be the spirit of man with one throne on which Christ is enthroned. And then lots of little thrones in all of these other areas of life. It's like a mansion with lots of rooms, all of which have their own little throne. And we have the keys to all those doors. Now, when a person becomes a Christian, I think they do have to understand some measure of the Lordship of Christ. They can't just uh, merely mumble a prayer and uh, think of themselves as Christians. It's a matter of acceding to the Lordship of Christ. Now, we may not understand what that means. We may not understand the implications of his lordship, but we have to be willing to make him Lord. And so he comes into the center of our life, into the inner man, and he takes up residence there on the throne. But he isn't content with that. You know, he just starts knocking on one door after another. And he says, let, let, let me in. We have all these little rooms in our house that represent our, our vocation and our relationship with our wife and our relationship with people down at the office and and some kind of recreational thing that we do, and some some project we're involved in the community and whatnot, and and it's just it's like an like a enormous mansion with innumerable rooms, and and some of some of those rooms you know, we don't mind at all if Christ asserts His authority in those areas, but we have trouble with others. Some of you men have a room that's labeled private, and and what. What's in that room is the time period between 6 o'clock at night and, and bedtime. And, you know, we, we come home from work, and we've been talking all day. We have about a foot of tongue hanging out, and we don't want to talk to anybody. And so we uh, turn on the TV and veg out from 6 to six to 12 or whenever you go to bed. I saw a cartoon the other day. This guy was bending over, turning on a TV set, and he turns to his wife and he says, if you have anything to say before football season, you better say it now. <laughs> After all, we deserved it. We work hard all day. We, we, need, we want to be left alone. Private. That time is mine and the Lord comes knocking on the door. See, are, are you willing to serve? Are you willing to give up your privacy? Do you have what a friend of mine calls a Q-tip mentality, a willingness to be used for anything, anytime, anywhere, anyway? <clears throat> Just to open up that room and say, Lord, I'm, I'm yours to be used during this time. See? Uh, I, I can't tell you what, what, the, what your rooms are. Only you know. But it, it could be sexual fantasies. It, uh, it could be uh, an unwillingness to give yourself wholeheartedly to your spouse. It could be resentment or bitterness or a tendency to gossip and an unwillingness to judge it and put away. I don't know what it is, but all I know is that the Lord very lovingly and relentlessly and very insistently just keeps knocking on the door. He won't crash through the door, but he keeps insisting that he exert his influence on that area of, of our life. Now, for myself, I think that if we can resist his lordship forever in an area, we have good reason to doubt our salvation. Now, I'm not talking about resisting for a time. I, I find I, I, I have a tendency to, to hold out to the bitter end. But sooner or later, I know that I have to open the door. If any of us can go on 
and maintain a lifestyle of unfaithfulness to our mate and justify it and not be willing to judge it and put away put it away, then we, we could sincerely doubt our salvation. Or if we're unwilling to put our, our gossiping uh, tongue to death or deal with an unforgiving spirit or go on swindling people and not deal, then we have reason to doubt our salvation. But uh, if we're truly Christian, if we have truly submitted our lives to Christ as Lord, and he knocks on that door, though we may struggle for a time, sooner or later we have to open the door. And then he comes in and he starts cleaning the mess out. He doesn't want us to gussy it up and clean up the place for him. He just wants us to open the door and let him in. Now that is what Paul is talking about. That's what he's praying for. That Christ will have the run of your house. That there will be no rooms excluded. That every door would be open. That he can go into any place and start, start cleaning up the mess. doesn't mean that, that the, every room is in order. That's not the point. But are we willing to let Christ rule and reign and exert his authority in every portion of, of the house? That's the first thing for which Paul prays. The uh, second is in verse 17. And as I said, this one is dependent. This particular element in Paul's prayer is dependent upon the first. Paul prays that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend, grasp, apprehend, know uh, with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, and know that love experientially, which surpasses knowledge. That's interesting, isn't it? The qualifying phrase uh, contradicts the verb. Know something you can't know. But, of course, what he's talking about is that we can't really know and understand uh, the infinite love which God has for us, but we can know something of it. We can experience it in some measure. And that's what he prays for, that we will comprehend and know the love of Christ. Now, first, uh, there is a prior condition. He says, you have been rooted and grounded in love. He's talking about the salvation process, which roots us unshakably in God's love. Nothing can shake us loose from the love of Christ. He uses two metaphors. One from the realm of, uh, of agriculture. We're like a thousand-year-old oak with, with roots that go, go hundreds of feet down into the ground and spread out and, and uh, maintain the stability of that oak. And secondly, we're like a, a skyscraper that's, that's built upon a foundation that goes way down into the depths of the earth. We have this unshakable confidence. We have been rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Now, he says, I, that, that's true. But the problem is that most of us have trouble realizing it, comprehending it, grasping it, how much, how much Christ loves us, and experientially knowing it so that it fills and floods our, our thoughts. We revel in it, rest in it. The, the, the problem is that most of us have never seen any real examples of God-like love. All human love is tinged with selfishness. C.S. Lewis says there's only one exception, and that's the kind of love that a man expresses for his mate when he uh, provides for her after his death. But for myself, I think even that is, is sometimes a reaction of guilt rather than pure selfless love. All of us are selfish in our love. We know that our friendships are not uh, really adequate. They're up and down. And romantic love comes and, and goes. As a friend of mine says, that's just a trick that your hormones play on you to get you married. And... Uh, <laughs> I read just this past week that some scientist at, uh, 
at Johns Hopkins of uh, Dr. Money has discovered that romantic feelings are nothing more than electrical currents running down a nerve to the hypothalamus, and that somehow Carolyn does not like that at all. But, uh, <laughs> but romance, of course, is certainly more than that. But uh, we know how that comes and goes and waxes and wanes, and that's not a good example of, of the love of God. We, we have never seen anything like this until we see the cross and we understand that God's love is utterly, totally selfless. He just loves us the way we are. It's hard to get across. I, I find it's hard for me to receive love. You know, I get embarrassed when people make over me, and I kind of cringe when people hug me. And, and all my life, it's just been hard for me to receive love. I don't know why. And it translates into my Christian experience. It's hard for me to realize that God loves me. But he does. Paul says so. I've been rooted and grounded in that love, and there's no way I can get away from it. He says it's like a wall in which we're enclosed. So high we can't get over it. You know, these, the four dimensions, the coordinates that he mentions here cover all the bases. It's so high you can't get over it. So, so deep you can't dig under it. So wide you can't get around it. You're walled in. My father used to tell a story about a man who had too much to drink and he ran into a telephone pole and knocked him down and he got up and wandered around the other side of the telephone pole, ran into it again and went around the other side of the telephone pole, ran into it again and Tried it the fourth time, ran into the telephone pole, and got up and said, it's no use, I'm walled in. <laughs> it's a terrible story, but it illustrates my point. You can't get away from God's love. You're walled in. You can't get away. There's nothing you can do. Well, how do we come to know experientially, existentially, that God loves us and cares for us? Two ways. Knowing the love of God is based upon our willingness to let Christ have the run of the house. One is dependent upon the other. It's when, and I'm not talking about perfection in behavior. I'm talking about intent, a willingness to let the Lord rule and reign and, and, and uh, have access to every, every aspect of our, of our life. When we do that, we begin to sense something of God's love for us. I don't understand how it works. I just know it works. The love of Christ comes flooding into our heart. Uh, John reports Jesus' words this way. He says, uh, uh, Jesus said, He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he, will, he that loves me will be loved by my Father, and we will come and we will manifest ourselves to him. The love of God becomes real when we're willing to let him be Lord in our life. Uh, years ago, I went to a pastor's conference uh, at which Dr. Henry Brandt was the speaker, and um, he told a story about a counseling appointment he had had a couple of weeks before with a, a young lady who came in to talk to him, and she said, I have, I have no sense of my peace with God. I have no awareness that I'm forgiven or that God loves me. I struggle with guilt and, and with anguish uh, over uh, what I think is God's distaste for me and, and my life. And Dr. Brandon, his characteristic, characteristic, very loving but very blunt way, said, Well, young lady, he said, you know what your problem is? And she said, no, tell me, that's why I came. He said, well, you're wicked. And she was really taken aback by that. And she said, what do you mean I'm wicked? And he said, well, Isaiah said there is no peace to the wicked. And Isaiah was talking about objective peace, not a subjective feeling, but an awareness of, our, of, our, of the peace that's been made with God. There is no peace to the wicked. Now, he said, what we've got to do is find out where you're wicked. There are overt uh, uh, aspects of wickedness, and there's hidden covert wickedness. We just have to find out where you're wicked. And when we find out where you're resisting the lordship of Christ 
And when you judge that and put it away, then you'll begin to experience something of the love of Christ. Now, that's the first place to start. If we have not let Christ be Lord, we will not know his love. It's just that simple. And then secondly, if we're still struggling, though we're willing to let Christ be Lord, then pray. That's what Paul does. He prays for us that we'll come to realize his love. It's not a matter of pounding it into our head somehow. I mentioned before, I used to walk the hills of up in the Santa Clara Mountains, and just tell myself, you know, God loves me, God loves me. And it never worked until I began to pray that God would show me, would, would make himself real to me. And then I began to have a greater measure of assurance of the love of Christ. Now, that's the second thing for which Paul prays. He first prays that uh, Christ will be at home in our hearts, and secondly, that we will comprehend with all the saints, all the dimensions of the love of God, God's love for us. And by the way, this, is, uh, this uh, knowledge of God's love is not the special privilege of a few saints. He makes that very clear. It's, it's for all the saints. He wants all of us to know this truth. And then thirdly, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, he's not saying here, he's not praying that we will be filled up with God. That's not his point. The, the preposition indicates uh, something other than that. He's, he's praying that we'll be filled up to the measure of God's fullness. And we say full, fullness of what? The fullness of God's character. Do you realize what Paul is, is praying? He's praying that we will be as holy and as godly as God is. The standard which he holds up is not some other person in the body of Christ. It's God himself. We were to be holy because he is holy. We are to uh, be like the Father. We're to bear the family resemblance. We're to be godlike. We're to have love and peace and joy and gentleness and, and courage and humility and non-defensiveness. All the things that characterized our Lord, those are to be ours as well. It's like pulling into a filling station and, and saying, fill her up. And he says, how much? Well, an infinite amount. See? Just fill it up. There's no... See what he's saying? There's no limit to our growth in grace. That's why Peter says, keep on growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There are no limits to the, to the, to the likeness of Christ to which we can, we can grow. We, we tend to grow to ceilings in other areas. When I was in high school, as a senior in high school, I was, I was 5, 11, and 3 quarters. And I couldn't grow anymore. I, I tried everything to grow just a quarter of an inch more so I could be 6 feet tall. And I never made it. As a matter of fact, I've shrunk since then. <laughs> I'm just barely 5'11 now. I never made 5'11 and 3 quarters. One of the great disappointments of my life. I, I grew to that, that I, I topped out at 5'11 and 3 quarters. And we tend to top out in terms of, uh, of intellect. Uh, they tell us that our IQ is developed when we're very young, and by the time you're 30, you actually go the other way. Here I am, 51, and that's bad news. You know, There's a thing in the Statesman here a couple of weeks ago that from 30 to 50, you, you start to decline in intellectual ability. That's a real blow. But that's what happens. See? We, we tend to, to grow to limits uh, athletically. Uh, you can only run so fast. You can only hit so hard. We have limitations all down the line. You only go so far in your career, and then uh, the Peter principle sets in, and, 
and you just rise to the next level where you're totally incompetent. And uh, we, we know that's true, but there's no limit to how much we can grow in character. Do you see that? There's no limit. Now, that's a great word for those of you that are retired and you know your, your career is over, but character can go on and on and on. There's no end to how much you can grow. Some of you are frustrated in your marriage and you just can't seem to get the thing to work right because your partner's not cooperating and you can't grow in your relationship, but you can grow in grace. Some of you high school people, you know, you, you've, you're not uh, part of the, the, the elite. When I was in high, I don't know, I think things are probably the same way today, but when I was in high school, there were three classes of kids. We call them the heads, the hoods, and the herd. The heads were generally athletes and cheerleaders. It wasn't the thing to be uh, to do well uh, in your in your uh, studies back then. So most of the student leaders were athletes, and the hoods were the kids that smoked dope and uh, wore leather jackets, and they were they were that group. And if you wanted to be noticed around the campus, you had to either be a head or a hood. And everybody else was in this great unwashed mass of uh, humanity that we call the herd. And uh, I don't know, things are probably like that today. You know, most, most of you, you people are just in the herd, and you'll probably never be acknowledged or known or recognized on the campus. You'll never be a great athlete. You'll never be a student leader. You'll never do as well as some of the other kids do academically. But you can grow in grace. You, you can increase to the measure, the infinite measure, of God's character. There's no limit to how much you can grow. You don't need to be frustrated. You can grow up to the fullness of God. Now, I know what most of you are thinking. It's what I thought when I read this the first time and reminded myself of this, this, uh, this incredible promise. Not me. Not me. It may work for everybody else, but it doesn't work for me. I can't even stay on a diet. You know? I, I, I can't uh, stay on a, a, a jogging program. I can't follow through on anything. I'll, I'll never do it. Well, that's why Paul appends these words, Now to him who is able. He doesn't say, All right, get out there and give it your best shots. Try again. Try harder. He says, To him who is able. Who's able around here? Not, not me, not you, but God. He's able. What is he able to do? Well, he's able to do exceeding abundantly Above anything you could ask or think, anything you could pray, pray or long for, even the things that you're afraid to pray for because they're so far beyond you in terms of, of change in your own character. Paul says he's able to do exceeding abundantly above anything we could ask or think. F.F. F. Bruce calls this another example of Paul's use of super superlatives. Paul just, uh, just waxes eloquent here. He could do more than you could ever imagine, ever fantasize about, ever dream about. You can exceed your wildest expectations and dreams. To him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory where? In the church and in Christ Jesus. To all generations, forever and ever. By all generations, he means throughout history, and forever he means uh, throughout eternity. Remember I said at the very outset that there are two 
two vehicles by which God has displayed his glory to the world. One is our Lord Jesus and the gracious, winsome way in which he went and walked through the world displayed the character and the glory of God. John says, no one has seen God at any time. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. If you want to know what God is like, then look at Jesus Christ. That's where you see the glory of God. You know where else it's seen? In you and in me, in his church. And we say, you have got to be kidding. Look at the state of the church today. Well, that's to our shame. But it's not God's fault. It's not his inability. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above anything we ever ask or think. The glory of God will be seen in this body and other bodies throughout Boise and throughout the world when we get serious about our submission to the Lordship of Christ, about immersing ourselves and knowing and experiencing the love of Christ, and we, when we permit the Spirit of God to cause growth to the point that we are displaying to the world the, uh, the character of God himself. That's when the world will listen to us. That's what matters. That's the only thing that matters. Our programs, our buildings, our teachers, all the rest of it is all to that end. Those are the purposes for which the greater purpose exists, that we as a church might make known to the world the glory of God. If we're not doing that, we're missing the point. As Jesus would say, we're no longer salt, we're no longer light. Jesus said to a group of men that had never been more than 50 miles away from home and most of whom had less than an 8th grade education or the the counterpart of that, he said, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. He said that in the light. And, you know, Jesus knew about the classical Greek writers. He knew the heritage of the ancient world. He didn't say Aristotle and Socrates and Plato and Euripides and, and Xenophon are the light of the world. He, he, he spoke to a group of, of sailors, fishermen, farmers, merchantmen. He said, you and you alone are the light of the world. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. The world, quite literally, is, is going to hell in a handbasket. We know that. There's social, political, economic forces that are tearing the world apart. The world can't help itself. The world can't stop from going bad. It's becoming increasingly corrupt. We desperately need to see examples of manhood and womanhood. And when we go out into the world and we live out the measure of the fullness of Christ in the world, then the world sits up and takes notice. We're salty. We arrest the spread of corruption. We're light. We dispel the darkness wherever we go. See? That's what Jesus has to say to us. And if we're not, he says, we're good for nothing. With all of our meetings and programs and money and activities and all the rest of it, we're good for nothing. He says, we're like salt that's lost its tank. People throw it out and it gets trampled underfoot. That's why the world today is taking away from us so many of the privileges that we formerly enjoyed as a church, the tax benefits and advantages that we had. Those are not rights that we possess. Let's get that, get that straight. Those are privileges that the world gave us because we had a redemptive uh, effect upon society. And now that we have stopped being redemptive, these privileges are being taken away, and rightfully so. Jesus told us it would be so. So it's a serious thing. We need to be salt and light. But you see, it doesn't depend upon us. It depends upon him. So Paul would say, I'm praying for you that Christ will have uh, free reign with your life and that you'll come to comprehend and experience the love of Christ and you'll grow up to the stature of the fullness of Christ in all, all things. And we need to pray that for one another. Pray that for me. Pray that for yourself. Pray that for your family members. Oh, that's so much more effective than words. Somehow we think words are the way you change people. 
Words, that doesn't change anyone. Jesus said the kingdom of God, or Paul said, the kingdom of God does not come through, through words, but through power. It's not by talking our high school uh, kids to death that we're going to change them, or talking to our parents to death that we'll change them. It's through power. So we begin to, to pray that God will change them, live it out, and surely there, there is a time for words. I'm not saying that, that we don't at times have to talk. But we can't rely upon talk. We have to rely upon the mighty power of the Spirit of God to change our lives and to change the lives of others. Let's pray. Would you join with me in, in praying this prayer that, that Paul prayed for us? Will you pray it for yourself first? Would you pray that Christ, that, that you being strengthened with all might in the inner man by the Holy Spirit might Give Christ the run of, of your house. Perhaps this would be the time to unlock a door that you've uh, that, and, and let him in to an area of your life that you've reserved to yourself. Tell him you want him to have free and full use of the house, <clears throat> to be at home there. And secondly, will you pray that you might, since you have been rooted and grounded in, in love, that you'll come to, to know it and experience it and believe it and rest in it. To know that you're very uh, significant to God and that he loves you very much. And then will you pray that by his power he will begin to change you from attribute to attribute into his likeness. That we may grow, as Paul puts it, from grace to grace, from one degree of likeness to Christ to another. And now will you pray those things for someone near you? One of your kids, your spouse, your mother or father, some colleague, associate in your work. friend Father we're so excited by this prospect this great prospect of of living out the full measure of your of your life in the world and yet we're humbled by it we thank you for this great call to which you've called us help us to live it out in the in the, the invisible ways so that the world can can see your glory in, in the church. Help us to be forgiving and loving of, uh, toward one another. Help us to uh, receive those that, that come in as members of your body and set aside the differences that don't really matter. Help us to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as, as you forgave us for Christ's sake. And may we this, this week, Lord, display your character wherever we go and thus bring glory to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.